Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for the privilege we have to meet together as men to fellowship around your word. And we thank you for the book of Galatians. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and his heart and his passion for the gospel. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. Help us to just see how the gospel applies, not just to unbelievers, but to believers as well. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, you know, if Bob Carl's nickname is the professor, I think my nickname should be the practitioner. Because when I approach the scriptures, I'm always, I always want to know the practical stuff. I want to, I ask myself the question, so what? Or what do you, what do you want me to get out of this? And so this morning, a lot of what I'm going to share is really that practical stuff. How does the book of Galatians apply to us today? But I will give some background information. Um, here's a map of uh, Galatia. You see it up there in the top. Galatia was a Roman province in the Central Asia Minor. Today it's in Turkey. Paul traveled there on each of his three missionary journeys where he spread the good news of the gospel. This map shows his first missionary journey. The Galatians received Paul and the gospel warmly, at least at first, but later some people that Paul refers to as agitators, came and challenged Paul's leadership as well as his gospel message. In the early church, those who taught a combination of God's grace and human effort were called Judaizers. The word Judaizer comes from the Greek verb, which means to live according to Jewish customs. The word actually appears in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14 where Paul describes how he confronted Peter for forcing Gentiles to Judaize. So Paul wrote to answer the threat to his status as an apostle and to reaffirm his core message that faith in Jesus is the only way to be saved, and it's also the key to our spiritual growth. There's an urgency in Paul's letter. The letter was to be circulated to all the churches he planted in Galatia that were being quickly led astray. You can outline the book like this. Chapters 1 and 2, the defense of the true gospel. These are mostly Paul's personal words, and you see his, his passion. You might even say his anger. <laughs> chapters 3 and 4, freedom from legalism. Focus on doctrinal teaching, and then chapters 5 and 6, freedom to love and serve, an emphasis on practical exhortations. The tone of Paul's letter is vigorous, very direct, and brief. And you can tell that Paul is upset. He's very upset. The theme is that justification comes by faith in Jesus, not by works of the law. The key verse is Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In that one verse, about three different times, he brings that point out that you are not justified by the works of the law. So here's a little timeline. Paul plants the churches of Galatia during his first missionary journey, which you can read in Acts chapters 13 and 14. The false teachers then enter the Galatian churches sometime after Paul's departure. And then Paul writes the letter of Galatians around 48 or 49 AD, prompted by the news of this false teaching. What are the two key questions that Paul answers for us in the book of Galatians? This is going to be the focus of our discussion this morning. And by the way, I'm hoping to leave a lot of time at the end for some real good discussion, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, because I'm guessing you're going to have, there's going to be a lot of different insights and, and uh, maybe questions that you have. The two questions I, that I see in the book of Galatians are this. First, is the good news of Jesus or the gospel enough to justify us before God? The second question is, how do we actually grow in our faith and become more like Christ? So let's dive into chapter one. Could I have a volunteer, maybe Big Dan, read chapter one, verses one to 12. Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now I'm trying to win the approval of human beings or of God, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by the revelation from Jesus Christ. Thanks, Big Dan. So what we see in this chapter, chapter one, we see the gospel is mentioned, 50, well, in chapters one and two, the gospel, the word gospel is mentioned 15 times. The word law is mentioned in Galatians 29 times, and the word spirit is mentioned 10 times. And you could actually argue the word gospel is mentioned much more than, than 15 times because the way the synonyms that Paul uses for the word for gospel in the book. But to really understand the gospel, you need to understand these four key characteristics of the life-changing gospel. The first one is the power of the gospel that we see in, in, in chapter one. 
The gospel is not Paul's invention. It's a message of Jesus Christ. That's what one of the things he says in chapter one. And in one eleven, he says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel preached by me was not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So God's words, God's word aren't like our words. God's words are powerful and can change reality. We see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, another book that Paul wrote, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel changes lives. In fact, I'm guessing the gospel has changed your life. And we all know that. If you've been born again, you understand the power of the gospel. And so Paul makes that very clear. That's the first characteristic. The second characteristic we see is the urgency of the gospel. The gospel tells the big story that the world is falling apart and people are condemned and trapped by lies. Jesus Christ's mission is like a daring rescue mission. The people need to be delivered from this present evil age. We live in the midst of this cosmic spiritual battle for the souls of countless men and women. And Paul is deeply concerned that his readers understand the one true gospel because it's only through the gospel that people can be delivered from evil. So Paul expresses an urgency in correcting the error and getting the gospel right. So we see the power of the gospel, the urgency of the gospel. Third, we, the third characteristic is the intimacy of the gospel. When you turn away from the gospel, you're actually turning away from God <laughs> because the gospel helps us to build a personal relationship with God. To lose the gospel is to lose him. The gospel shows us God's grace through what Jesus sacrificed, teaching us that God's love isn't based on what we do but who we are. This is what makes us want to follow God's rules because we love him, not because we want something. The gospel's not a religious creed. The gospel is a person, Jesus, right? So we see the intimacy of the gospel. And then fourth, we see the order of the gospel. The gospel is a story with a sp specific structure and and truth. If you mess up the order, you can get it wrong. Like the false teachers in Galatians, they, they messed up the order of the gospel. That's why you see this word distort. The Greek word translated distort is also translated pervert, or it actually means to reverse or to turn inside out. This is what the Judaizers were doing with the gospel. We see it in Acts chapter 15, verse 1 where it said, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is one of the things that really upset Paul. Paul says they reversed the gospel. They got the order wrong. So what do I mean by that? Well, Paul taught this. Number one, believe in Jesus Christ. Number two, you will be saved. Number three, as a result, you will obey the law. The Judaizers taught, number one, believe in Jesus Christ. 
Number two, obey God's law. Number three, then you will be saved. They got the order wrong, and it makes all the difference. You see, Paul is telling us the order matters. And, you know, you've probably all heard this. The gospel is Jesus plus what? Nothing. Jesus plus nothing. What do you need? What do you need? You, you need, the only thing you come to Christ with is you need, you need him. You need, you know, you, you need need. So let's continue in chapter two. Let's, let's, let's look at chapter two. Actually, before we do that, let me, let me bring up, uh, the book of Galatians had a huge impact on Martin Luther. So much so that he refers to the book of Galatians as his second wife. He actually does that. He wrote a whole, he wrote a whole commentary on the book of Galatians. And in the introduction, he, he calls Galatians his wife. He loved the book of Galatians because it changed him. But Martin Luther also helps us understand what a true believer is because he came up with this phrase, simul justus ec peccator, or justified sinners. Justified sinners, that we are simultaneously justified and a sinner at the same time. That's what a Christian is. God sees us right now as perfect, just as he sees his son. We call this imputed righteousness, imputed righteousness. And we get this from one of the key verses is 1 Corinthians 5.21. Again, words of Paul, where he said that God made him, or Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great exchange. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. And then we even see it in Colossians, Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Once you were alien, alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now contrast this with other religions. Other religions will say, that I am either a moral success or a moral failure. But Christianity says, I am completely redeemed. I'm a completely redeemed, justified failure. <laughs> I am a, you know, so what is a true believer? We are an honored failure. We are a, a righteous sinner. We are a justified sinner. That's how the Bible describes us. Paul later wrote in, in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited to them as righteousness. Th that truth changed this guy's life and changed countless lives and should change your, uh, your life and my life. By the way, just um, as I was looking at different quotes from Martin Luther's commentary on the Galatians, there were some other quotes that, kind of stood out to me. I'm, I'm just going to share some of them. I, I thought they were pretty interesting. He said, uh, to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace, by grace alone, is the hardest thing. To be convinced in your heart, it's the hardest thing. Then he said, we are nothing with all our gifts, be they ever so great, except God assist us. 
And he said, the gospel is true because it deprives men of all glory, wisdom, and righteousness and turns over all honor to the creator alone. It is safer to attribute too much glory unto God than unto man. I like that quote. And then he said, the article of justification is fragile, not in itself, of course, but in us. I know how quickly a person can forfeit the joy of the gospel. With that, let's continue and read chapter 2. Um, could I have a volunteer read chapter 2, verses 1 to 10? Mark? Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that somehow I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Yet it was a concern because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy on our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to enslave us. But we did not yield in subjection to them, even for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of considerable repute, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. Well, those who were of repute contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who was at work for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised was at work for me, also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. The point of that is Paul is sharing his personal experience, and I love in verse 3, he says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Continue reading, Mark, if you don't mind, chapter 2, 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of some men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Thanks, Mark. Here we see two of the greatest Christians fighting each other. Isn't that crazy? I mean, Paul confronts Peter, two of the greatest Christians in all of history, fighting. This is an important passage to think about. Paul says in 2.14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? What does it mean to not act in line with the gospel? Well, not acting in line means that you can fall offline. You can fall offline on one side to the other. And what's interesting is Tertullian, who was a prolific early Christian author from Carthage in the Roman province of Africa, he lived around 160 to 240 AD. That was his lifespan. 
he, um, years later, uh, made this comment. He said, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the doctrine of justification is crucified between two opposite errors. What is he talking about? So what are the, what are the two thieves of the gospel? Well, I find this, this diagram incredibly helpful. What Tertullian meant is that there are basically two false ways of thinking, each which steals the power and distinctiveness of the gospel from us by pulling us, pulling the gospel, pulling us offline with the gospel to one side or the other. These two errors are very powerful because they represent the natural tendency of the human heart and mind. The default setting of the human heart is bent towards self-justification. And so I just love this. I love this diagram because when you come to Christ, uh, you realize there's basically three ways you can live your life. You can follow the rules, you can follow your heart, or you can follow Jesus. But what happens as Christians often is we begin following Jesus, but then we start drifting. We start drifting to one side or the other. And you can see the Judaizers were like on the follow the rules. And if we do that, we fall into these traps of legalism or moralism. So these thieves can be called moralism or legalism on the one side or hedonism or relativism on the other side. Another way to put it is that the gospel opposes both religion and irreligion. On the one hand, moralism and religion stresses truth without grace, for it says that we must obey truth in order to be saved. On the other hand, the relativists or irreligion stresses grace without truth, for they say we're all accepted by God, and if there is a God, he, he must love everybody, and he's going to let everybody into heaven. But truth without grace is not really truth, and grace without, tr without truth is not really grace. That reminds me, I, I, was, I had the privilege to be friends with Jerry Bridges, and uh, I've heard him say this, love without truth deceives, but truth without love destroys. And what's interesting is we need to remember that Jesus was full of both grace and truth. And in, if you read the Gospels, you can see how he uses, you know, he, when he confronts the Pharisees, he just gives them truth. Like, he calls them a brood of vipers at one point. When he confronts a sin, sinful woman, he's much more gentle and he gives her grace. He knows how to use truth and grace in a way to bring people to himself. Let's talk about the one thief, legalism, moralism, where the Judaizers this is the view that you're acceptable to God, the world, and others through your attainments. The problem with this view is that it really leads either towards self-hatred because you can never live up to the standards. <laughs> you can never live up. Have you ever tried to live up to your own standards? And, you're, you know, you know we're, we're at a perfect time for this, New Year's resolutions, right? I forget what the statistics are, but the statistics are people that make New Year's resolutions, so very few people follow through with them because we can't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. Or it leads to self-inflation because if you convince yourself that you are living up to your standards, then you become full of pride. And neither of those have any place in God's kingdom. 
So that's the problem with the legalism, Dave. Let's talk about the other side for a second. Relativists or hedonists are usually irreligious. They believe that everyone needs to determine what is right and wrong for them. They believe that if there is a God, he's probably an, a loving, impersonal force. They don't think of themselves as sinners. If God accepts us, it's because he's so welcoming or because we're not that bad. So some people think, well, now as Christians, Christians can fall into license as well because they'll say, well, Christ died for my sins, past, present, and future. So heck, I might as well live however I want. Eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm free to commit any sin because they're all covered. Well, obviously, that's not right. I ran into a group at Kent State. You know, I've been in college ministry for most of my life, and there was this group at Kent State that fell into this trap of license because I called them like the swearing Christians because they they loved to just curse. And I mean, I mean it, was, it was the oddest thing for me personally because I can think of so many passages that talk, don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But these guys, and, and they just, it's like they went that way. And they, they were like, hey, you know, where's the Bible say you can't swear, or you can't say this word? It, I found it very offensive, actually. So that's the license thief. What do these two thieves have in common? They're both ways to avoid Jesus as Savior and to keep control of our lives. That is the problem because the default setting of our hearts is so much. We want control. We want self-justification and control. And they both are based on a distorted views of the real God. And they both deny our sin. And so we lose the power, the joy and power of grace. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast.com at gmail.com stay tuned for our next episode and remember on your worst days you're never beyond the reach of god's grace and on your best days you're never beyond the need of god's grace see you next time